One time on a journey upstate headed to see family, I saw a falling down shack outside a small town that never seemed to have a lot of economic possibilities. There it was, this shack at the back of an empty parking lot, grass growing up in the dirt, and spray painted across the old weathered wood was a declaration. Marge and Barb have class. A year later, either Marge and Barb or one of their admirers would add to the public affirmation and are sexy. And then a year after that, the shack was gone. Even then, my reaction to the writing on the walls, but also the fact that it existed, it all spoke to me to our whole bizarre fascination with class in America. I think as Americans, we like to think that we are liberated from the obsession of class that we read about in old English novels or hear about even now. People distinguished by some ancient family tree or maybe a particular accent or affiliation with certain institutions or who seem to have some knowledge that's passed down to them from some unpublished handbook of secret handshakes and norms. But we aren't really liberated from such notions. We get schooled in them, much to Ben's song. We get schooled in them young, carefully taught, and often involving, I think, shaming or fear of shame. I remember one of my introductions to this world. I was at a friend's house invited to dinner with her parents, both of whom I recall very clearly were child psychologists, which in retrospect I find ironic. We were all chatting and things seemed a little stiff but cordial when her father, who I was just meeting for the first time that night, looked over at me and said in a scolding and condescending tone, does your family let you eat with your elbows on the table? It was masterful on his part. In one fell swoop, he had pointed out that my elbows were on the table, that this was a capital offense, and that either I admitted that my family didn't care, thereby designating us as less than, or pull my elbows down in shame. My experience is that this is generally how controlling notions like notions around class work. There are norms and you're made to feel wrong for not knowing them or buying into them. You're shamed if you don't meet them. And they are somehow beyond challenge or try to be. It's worth noting that the ones we're talking about today, this one of class in particular, it's just another way that we human beings have found to other one another. Just another one of this category of things that I think we're trying hard to point out where we create a ladder of humanity and we put some folks up on it or other folks down on it. And if we're up, we take pride or false pride in where we are in this constructed ladder and we inflict unnecessary diminishment on those who we think are below us or tell are below us this other means of social control that's carefully taught told from birth not to challenge our place in whatever that social order is maybe directed to use our energy to sort of moving up in the construct 
Race, of course, works the same way, and the two, class and race, are often layered onto each other. It's brilliant in the way evil can be brilliant. I mean, let's just back up a minute. Seriously? Elbows on the table? There's no reason for that that's logical. I've never flipped a plate off or brought a table down or seen any other ill done by it. It's just a rule to a game that someone made up to see who knows the rules. And to this day, I have to admit, I do put my elbows on the table whenever I want to and sometimes in silent protest. <laughs> But of course, the larger reality that we're digging just a teeny bit into this morning is so much more insidious than elbows, though sometimes harder to see too. Mark Harris, the retired UU minister and author of the book Elite, Uncovering Classism in Unitarian Universalist History that we read from this morning, he writes, quote, we don't talk about class much in Unitarian Universalism. Class is a hard subject to talk about because many of us grew up believing that America has no class structure or that most everyone is middle class or that even if you are poor, we're all created equal and you too can grow up to be president of the United States, yet in many ways. Class is the most important predictor of what kinds of opportunities someone will have in life. We are stratified financially, socially, and educationally in ways that are predicted in part by class. Moreover, it turns out that struggles around class, identity, and consciousness has been with Unitarianism and Universalism well before our merger into Unitarian Universalism in 1961. It turns out, and here, We'll just do a quick sprint, but you can read Mark's book or others to get more detail, that the Unitarians from whom we come in England, contrary to what some of us might have assumed, were very much out of the main, excluded from established power. But coming to the United States, most Unitarians did pretty well for themselves, becoming, in fact, part of the establishment. In fact, Many of our Unitarian forebears were the establishment for a while. We were disproportionately represented in leadership. We were among the wealthy, particularly in places like Boston, by far the majority in the faculty and the students represented at institutions that crowned the American elite like Harvard. Unitarians moved up in the world, you might say. And once there, became the protectors of the status quo. Unitarians, it was pointed out by scholars and people at the time, claimed the worth and dignity of all, but we were also famous in the 19th and early 20th centuries for thinking some, ourselves, more equal and more worthy than others. For instance, there was no seeming contradiction between what was preached in some churches and the fact that many of them sold their church pews so that those who came without money or status, as they told in stories and diaries and journals, were sent packing or possibly up to the balcony where, by the way, the servants and the slaves sat. Our universalist side of the family, and here we're generalizing all around, but that side of the family tended to be a bit different. 
To be fair and honest, many Universalists also did well, very well for ourselves in early American history. Many were farmers and tradespeople, but often became merchants and very successful ones, or large successful farmers. Somehow, though, in general, this part of our family tree tended to keep the doors to our hearts and our churches and our theology open. Or maybe we should reverse that order. Maybe they kept their theology open and then they kept everything else in line with that theological commitment. Universalists, some scholars summarized, believed the way to heaven was collective, preached a redemption that was a shared venture and believed in a heaven that was an actual place and without class or distinction that they would then begin to live into and emulate here on earth. By contrast, Unitarians like Channing and others believed salvation was an individual journey of self-cultivation, not everyone, but many. For Unitarians, our own historic experience of being marginalized was somewhat forgotten, it would seem as we fell into a kind of false pride and a temptation to set ourselves above others. Unitarians, clergy, there are many stories told, refused in many instances to exchange pulpits with their universalist colleagues because the latter's manners were found lacking or their style of preaching lacked evidence of formal education. All this, even though in that example, the two denominations later to be married shared commitment to human dignity and possibility and social change agendas that were so close, so close we would later merge. So in 1961, when our two denominations merged, this issue was there flowing in the underground water and resistance to merger often brought up some of these issues. Universalists at the Universalist National Memorial Church in Washington, D.C., where I first settled, this had been the cathedral of universalism in America. They still resented the condescension they felt at the hands of Unitarians around merger. That church had been the home to ambassadors and congressmen, and Clara Barton had been a member, and they'd welcomed teachers and social workers and cooks and bus drivers, and they reminded me that at merger, the Unitarians had more members, brought more members to the joining of the two denominations, but the Universalists, they brought more money. Still, they were treated like second-class citizens. There was an arrogance that made Universalists wonder about the usefulness of class, let alone the danger of a denomination anchored in any class-centered identity. Mark Harris says, the essential question, to reground us, the essential question is who belongs with us? But maybe a related question is who is already us? A June 2015 interim report came about from a commission on appraisal that was asked to look at class in our denomination. And even in that interim report, 
it's clear that in the interviews that were conducted, that although the very wealthy were a small proportion of who were represented in our denominations and the very poor were a small proportion of who was represented, that there was a full spectrum of class identity represented in our denominations. However, those at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum reported feeling frequently diminished, unseen, and shamed by our community's unexamined norms. If wholeness and beloved community is our goal, and I think we are agreeing increasingly that that is our goal, then we're asking also, I think now, what it means to lean also into this piece of our growth spiritually and as a community. And I bet many of you actually can think of some answers to that question from your own personal experience and observation, and I hope we'll begin to share those stories and observations too as we unhook from these constructs of class and classism, just as we are about race and racism. But let me just name two things that have struck me over the years, just two to get us started thinking. First is just the assumption that sometimes circulates among Unitarian Universalists that you have to have a college or graduate degree to really fit in UU circles. I personally loved this denomination and was clear that the church I was in was a fit for me long before I had anything, even a high school degree. And it would have felt at home no matter where life took my energies or what formal education possibilities were open to me. I still do have a sense that to feel comfortable in Unitarian Universalist community, people probably have to be searching and questioning. But I'm open to rethinking that. But even if just that's true, I think we need to admit that the world is full of questioning minds and hearts, including our own, who for any number of reason may not have college or even high school degrees. And that the world is full of people with lots of degrees too who don't really question much at all. So that's an assumption we can name when it shows up in our shared life or the way we talk about ourselves as a community. Second, I think we have to be on the lookout for any assumption we have about what is of value and innate to us. For instance, and I'm going to raise this carefully, I've long been aware that in every church I have ever served or been a member of, there is this underlying assumption that Western classical music is the only music for our churches. It is less so here at UUSF than in any church I have ever served. Here, Mark draws regularly from the wide array of artists that are available to us in the San Francisco art scene, and Mark and Reiko draw widely from a variety of music that fits our services and themes and tone. But it makes sense that if our search for truth and meaning takes us from science to poetry to ancient texts to modern novels, that it would take us broadly searching for our inspiration in music too, right? And that, for instance, 
Someone like your minister, your senior minister, loves lots of different kinds of music, including John Coltrane, and I grew up listening to rehearsals of my father's bluegrass band, and there's music, too, that has deeply religious themes. So what would it mean to continue to challenge any notion that there's any music, specific category, or even spectrum that is church music and everything else? somehow off limits, particularly if it makes someone more home here, more at home. And while I'm on this subject, let me also say this corollary too. I've heard assumptions over the years that certain groups of people want to hear certain kinds of music. And when it's said, it's often rife with cultural and racial and class assumptions about who likes what kinds of music. And those assumptions are almost always wrong and sometimes insulting to boot. So I would suggest instead we drop all those categories that have been carefully taught sometimes and we just try to see one another in these moments and we just ask with this curious spirit what feeds each of us and then we'd be willing to weave that in, in all areas of our life, weave that in a little more into what will make this church more home for all of us. And see that as what church is about, church music, church worship, church norms. I think what I'm talking about writ large is just reaching back to that universalist notion of salvation as collective and dig into what it means evermore to live together and make church together based in that. Andy Stanley, who's an evangelical church leader whose teachings on leadership have a lot of wisdom, he has this great phrase, which maybe I have said to you before. He commands us to be married to mission and date everything else. In our case, we seem to be getting really clear that our mission, I think, is to make and remake ourselves for beloved community. So to be married to that is to use an old metaphor, lay a big welcome table, maybe one where you can feel free to put your elbows down, especially as you lean in to listen to the stories others are sharing. And it may mean that the band can play a whole lot of different kinds of music depending on the night and what it requires, what calls out to spirit. And it means that we delight in all the gorgeous faces gathered around this banquet that we have helped lay out for everyone, for everyone who wanted to find a place here. May it be so.